Let's open our Bibles, if you will, to uh, Habakkuk, one of the Old Testament books, and uh, right at the latter part of the Old Testament. And let me mention that the session will meet immediately after the service tonight to entertain applicants for membership in my study on your right as you go through the foyer. <clears throat> let me just read one, uh, one verse of Habakkuk, the first chapter, and then we will... Look at what he has to say. The thirteenth verse of the first chapter. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Recently, I had a phone call from someone who was very upset, and something tragic had happened to a friend of theirs, something really terribly tragic. And uh, this person uh, was totally shaken by it. Uh, uh, how did uh, this square with the idea that uh, there was a good God uh, and that God was in control? If God was good and God was in control, why did he let this terribly unjust thing happen? And, uh, of course, <clears throat> this person was not the first to raise that question. And you find that many of the religions of the world wrestle with this ancient question called the uh, one aspect of the problem of evil. And... Uh, some of them have come up with uh, interesting answers. Uh, Zoroastrianism comes up with the answer that uh, there's a good power and an evil power and that the two are about equal. And you have this struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and uh, it's going on forever. Uh, it's uh, This is somewhat akin to what Christianity says, but there's a difference. Christianity says that the good power is in control and that the other power is not in control. Uh, the Buddhist religion, Buddha, observed this problem and he came up with his solution. His solution was, if you don't want to get hurt, the way not to get hurt is not to care about anything, just kind of live with an inward vacuum. If you have loved ones, uh, if you have possessions, you will be hurt if you lose them, so don't have any attachments. And Buddha left his wife and uh, lived a monastic life and a very placid life as he simply uh, somewhat isolated himself inwardly from the world. Well, <clears throat> Habakkuk uh, is the classic statement of Christians of the Christian's answer to this problem. And uh, as we look at it, first we find uh, Habakkuk, his problem, and his procedure. His problem is uh, stated uh, in the first four verses. He had a burden. It says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? His problem was something akin to the problem of a godly man in America today. A godly man in America today would look at the situation, he would see the evil prevalent in government, in society, the immorality, 
the wickedness, the uh, stirring up of strife between men, the racial violence that's been purposefully created or at least a catalyst set to. And uh, he would be troubled about uh, this. He would be burdened and about God's connection to it. And, and Habakkuk says, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry? Lord, I've been praying about this, and you're not doing anything about it. Uh, and thou wilt not hear, even cry to unto thee out of violence. I'm right in the middle of this situation, and it's all around me, and I'm praying about it, and nothing's happening. Thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity? Why do you even let me see it if you're not going to do anything about it? Uh, and cause me to behold grievance, for spoiling and violence are before me. Uh, there are that raise up strife and contention. God, men are going around setting men at variance, lighting a fire that no one's going to be able to put out, uh, engendering hatred that it'll take centuries to remove. Uh, God, uh, what about this situation? Therefore the law is slack, and judgment uh, is, <clears throat> doth never go forth. The wicked doth compass about the righteous. Wrong judgment proceedeth. When a man does try to do something about it, and they take uh, one of these men, like Rap Brown or someone else, and put him in jail where uh, the judges turn him loose and the Supreme Court reverses the decision, God... The very, the very problem that men wrestle with today is, is what Habakkuk wrestled with. He couldn't reconcile a bad world and a good God. He couldn't reconcile what he saw with what he believed. Why was this allowed? God, are you asleep? God, don't you hear? God, don't you care? Aren't you concerned? Can't you do anything? His... Uh, <clears throat> problem was something like that that R.G. Lee, the famous Baptist preacher of our generation, brings out in his sermon on payday someday on Naboth's vineyard, that, the story in uh, the book of Kings where uh, Jezebel decides to, by defraud and deceit, uh, take Naboth's vineyard and give it to her husband Ahab. And so she has false witnesses to testify against Naboth. She has uh, the town fathers declare him guilty, and he's stoned to death. Then she goes to her husband, and she says, Ahab, I'll make you a birthday present of Naboth's vineyard. And so Ahab goes out to the vineyard, and he's going through it, and he's overjoyed, and he decides what he's going to plant over here and what he's going to plant over there. And at this point in the sermon, old R.G. Lee with his white hair rears back and he says, Where is God? <laughs> That's what I did when he did that. <laughs> Where is God? This is the question that Habakkuk raises. And you would realize that the problem would never arise unless a man believed in God. This is no problem to an unbeliever why all the evil. It's, it's the man who has some faith that uh, this is a problem too. Notice God's answer. <clears throat> that's the burden. That's the problem. Notice God's answer. He says, I am working, uh, Habakkuk. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe what I'm doing. And uh, this starts in the fifth verse. Behold ye among the, the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, says God to Habakkuk, 
For I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, the Babylonians. He says, I'm going to bring them, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity uh, shall proceed of themselves. Their horses are swifter than the leopards. And so on. And he goes on to say, I'm going to bring them, and they are going to take uh, Israel into captivity, Jerusalem into captivity, Judah. And uh, this is God's answer. <clears throat> he says, I am doing something. You feel I'm asleep, but I'm not. And oftentimes when we feel God's asleep, he's really very active behind the scenes. Many of you would be uh, familiar with Messiah Hibano, the Japanese Presbyterian minister that has, over the last four or five years, been closely associated with our congregation here, visiting in the summers and uh, now in Chicago. Messiah and I were in seminary together. He graduated a little before I did. He went to Princeton and got his master's. He felt a call to go back to his own people in Japan and preach. He went back. And uh, when he got back, he found out that he was un unacceptable in, Jap in Japan as far as a preacher of the gospel, that uh, his training had been over here, his dialect was different, uh, and uh, he would have to go to seminary over there and relearn everything he had learned, and uh, he was terrifically discouraged and confused. And uh, so he <clears throat> did uh, what most confused people do, he got married. <laughs> and then he uh, he left his wife and came over here, which was all he could do. He could not get a job there preaching, and uh, he felt called to preach. He came back to the States and thought he would try a Japanese Presbyterian church on the West Coast. And uh, he tried several, and there was no opening. And uh, finally he called me and I said, well, come to Birmingham. Uh, there are nine empty Presbyterian pulpits right here in the city, and uh, possibly one of these churches. So uh, we had him preach here, and uh, different of the men came. And meanwhile, he stayed with my wife and I. We had just been married, and that made a happy, joyful threesome. <laughs> and she was real sweet about it. And uh, meanwhile, we prayed, and... Uh, Everyone came to hear Messiah, and everyone praised Messiah, and no one called Messiah to be their pastor. And Messiah, this went on month after month, and he became discouraged. And finally one day he said to me, I'm going to just get a job driving a truck. And he was serious. And I said, Messiah, God didn't convert you in Japan and bring you here and send you through Temple College and then through Columbia Seminary and then to Princeton to drive a truck. And uh, I believe God is working. And uh, about this point, why he had a contact from one of these churches in uh, out in California that had heard of him and had begun investigating him some three months earlier, but hadn't said a word to him. And now when he's really discouraged and down, uh, the call comes from a church out there to come and preach, and then they called him as their pastor. God had been working all the time, but it seemed to us that God wasn't doing a thing. That's the way 
Habakkuk felt. And God said, no, I've, I've been working. I, I'm stirring up the Babylonians, and they're going to come, and they're going to punish the nation for all its evil. But Habakkuk wasn't too pleased. He said, God, that's worse. He said, we're bad, but they're terrible. God, uh, uh, you just, that's doing wrong. It's like us, uh, someone saying God's going to use the communists to punish America. And we might say, well, true, uh, we're, we're evil. We certainly haven't lived up to the light we've had. But communists are godless. And uh, they're terrible. Why should God use the communists to punish America? That's what Habakkuk says in the 13th verse. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. God, you're holy, and you do things right. Now, wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? You're going to bring the Babylonians. And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devour the man that's more righteous than he. We're better than they are. And... Uh, so this is Habakkuk's problem, his procedure. How do, how do you handle a problem like that? Well, Habakkuk's procedure, the procedure of a believing man when faced with a problem like this, a spiritual problem, he says, uh, I'll pray about it and wait and trust God to show me the answer. In the second chapter, verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. And what I shall answer when I am reproved. I know I'm wrong, but I'm just not sure how. But God will show me, and uh, he will answer this problem. <clears throat> That's his procedure. God is my Father. I have a big problem. Uh, I will take it to my Heavenly Father, and he will solve this problem for me. He's promised to do this. So he commits it unto God. Now we come. That's uh, his Habakkuk's problem and his procedure. Now we come to God and his promise and program. As God does answer Habakkuk, the answer is given in the second and third verse of the second chapter. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the tables, that he may run that readeth it. Habakkuk, I'm going to give you an answer in vision and I want you to give this answer to the world and make it plain so that the man who's running can still read it. A fellow won't have to stop and puzzle it out. It'll be clear as day what the answer to this problem is. Uh, he makes a promise in the third verse. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. He says, Habakkuk, I've got a plan, and I'm working everything according to the plan. There's an appointed time for each thing. It may seem to you that, that I'm tarrying and doing certain things, but it will not tarry. Everything will happen exactly on time. And he goes on to say that in the long run, justice will win out. In the long run... The wicked will be punished, and those who do right and walk with God will be rewarded and will be blessed. And the wicked being punished, in verse uh, <clears throat> 6 of the second chapter, the last half of that verse, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. How long will I put up with him? In verse 9, Woe unto him that 
coveted an evil covetousness to his house. Uh, verse 12, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establish a city by iniquity. Verse 15, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Verse 19, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, and to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Those who have false idols and worship them. Uh, God says the woe will come upon each of these. Payday is coming someday. In the long run, uh, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Often we've used the story of the uh, little country town where they had a church in, uh, on one Sunday uh, early in the spring where a farmer who had a farm right across from the church came and began plowing his field right in the middle of the church service. And this went on Sunday after Sunday. And finally, at the end of the harvest, he wrote a letter to the local newspaper. And he said, uh, while the Christians have been in church each Sunday, I've been out plowing my field. And you say that uh, that's against God and that he won't bless. But I want you to know that I've had the greatest harvest of anyone in the town, the greatest yield per acre. How do you explain that if God is what you say he is, and will bless the man who does right and will not bless the other man. And so the editor of the paper ran that, and uh, yet he put one sentence underneath. He said, God does not always balance his accounts in the month of October. <laughs> God will balance his accounts from the long run, but God's not too concerned about our time schedule. Uh, the right will win <clears throat> in the 14th verse of the second chapter the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in the long run God then goes on to speak of his program his program for you and me meanwhile here's what we're to do in the Fourth verse of the second chapter. <clears throat> Fourth verse uh, of the uh, second chapter. But the just shall live by his faith. In the meanwhile, the just shall live by faith. Now, you'd, you'd want to be conscious that this is a very uh, important verse in all of Scripture. This is the verse that God used to open the eyes of Martin Luther and bring forth the Protestant Reformation. Only he used it as is quoted over in the book of Romans. And there it's used in the sense of a man is made just in the sight of God by faith alone, not by his own good deeds. Uh, you remember Martin Luther sought to win God's approval by his own efforts, his own uh, keeping of rules and regulations, his own uh, liturgical exercises and uh, one day as he went up steps, stone steps at Rome on his knees, the study of the Bible that he'd been doing, this verse came to his mind. Martin Luther, the just shall live by faith, not by climbing steps on their knees, Martin Luther, by faith. And God used that whole concept of salvation as a gift given to those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior on the basis of his death for them, 
to bring about the Protestant Reformation. But that's not the way he's using it here. As used here, the phrase uh, has the idea of living day by day by faith in the face of circumstances such as Habakkuk was facing. Day by day you trust God in spite of appearances that he is in control and that he is bringing about his will. Like John Payton, we've used the story of the Presbyterian missionary John Payton, missionary to the New Hebrides. He went out, uh, he and his wife, his new wife, they landed there. Hadn't been there but a few weeks. First missionaries on this heathen idol, heathen island, and his, his new baby sickens and dies, and then his wife sickens and dies. And he writes this. He says, It was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances, but feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such visitations wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and those sorely needed for his service here. But this I do know and feel, that in the light of such dispensations it becomes us all to love and serve our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and for eternity. And he tells how he knelt on that little green grave and he claimed that place for God. Whenever Tanner turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, men in after days will find the memory of that spot still green where with ceaseless prayers and tears I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my dead. What happened to him? Well, they went for him. The natives went after his life. They chased him. He barely escaped the island with his life. And so God's purpose fails again. Oh, no. Oh, no. He went to Australia. And there he went around and he told Sunday school children about that island where no one knew Jesus and where he'd buried his dead. And the children gave their pennies. And he took his pen, those pennies and he bought a boat. And he called it the Day Spring. And he went to Scotland and he got some more pennies from Sunday school children. And he equipped his boat and he went back and he had a new wife and God gave him another son. And when he went back, he won every adult on the island to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to look at it from the long-run view. Take the story of William Carey. William Carey, called the father of modern missions, read his biography, read the little paperback in the bookstore. William Carey, a cobbler in England, burdened for the heathen, finally went out to India. What do you do when you get to India? You have to learn the language. And then what do you do? You've got to translate the Bible. And how many dialects are there? Forty. And how do you make a translation of the Bible? You have to have paper. Well, how do you make paper in India when there isn't any? Well, then you have to build a, a machinery. He had a treadmill with 40 runners on it to make the paper. But then you have to have a printing press. So he built a printing press. Then you've got to have a type foundry to make type for the printing press. So he had a type foundry. So then he was putting out these translations of the Bible in 40 different dialects. 
and it all burned up. The foundry, the paper-making area, the press, it all burned to the ground one night. And what did he do? He quit. No, he didn't. He and his cohorts got on their knees and prayed and started over again. And what happened? God caused that story to be spread around back in England. And it touched the hearts of people. And they opened their pocketbooks. And they gave so much money to the British Foreign Mission Society for this cause that for the first and only time in history, a foreign missionary society had to ask people to stop giving. They had more money than they knew what to do with. You have to take things from the long-run standpoint in God's program. Walk by faith, not by sight. Now we come back to Habakkuk, his prayer and his proclamation. In the third chapter, in verse 1, he says, The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigenot, upon this mount there, O Lord, I have heard thy speech. Lord, I understand now what you're going to do. And I was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. God, I asked for divine interference. I see that that's what you're going to do. And now I'm asking, O God, be merciful when you interfere. God, you're going to do such a terrible thing. I'm asking that in wrath you remember mercy. God, I was trying to live in a day. You're doing everything. You can't live in a day. You've got to live from the standpoint of eternity. And it scares me when I see what you're going to do. In verse 16 of the third chapter, When I heard my belly tremble, my lips quivered at thy voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. said, God, uh, you know, when you bring them... There are going to be some of us here in this nation who have been walking with you, who really are true servants of yours, who haven't been a part of all this evil. God, we're going to get hurt. My family is going to get hurt. And I'm afraid, God, that he makes this proclamation in verse 17. Although the, of the third chapter, although the fig tree shall not blossom... Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The field shall yield no meat. It's going to be a terrible time. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herds in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. How can a man make such a proclamation? How can a man really in his heart believe that very possibly... God's going to bring the communists on America, and yet in his heart he can say, I rejoice in the Lord, and I have peace. How can he say that? Well, he can do it because God has promised his protection and power. He remembers the power of God. He reminds himself who it is that's doing all this in the third verse of the third chapter. God came from Teman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah, his glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. says, God, I remember your power. I remember what you've done in the past for your people. In the 13th verse, thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people. 
even for the salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked. Says God, from what you've done in the past, I know of your power and your protection, and I know that I can trust you even in a situation like that. Oh, maybe I'll be killed, but I don't need to fear. If so, it's for my good. The Lord is my strength and my salvation, said the psalmist, and that's what he says here in the 19th verse. The Lord God, who controls everything, is my strength. He will make my feet like hands feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places. says, God, I'll just trust in you as my strength. I'll believe you, and I will commit my cause to you and walk with you now. Brethren, that's, that's what God would have us to do. We're faced with the same problem that Habakkuk was. Of course, you would understand that these, these promises and this power on your behalf only applies to those who have a covenant with the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. And even then, we must walk with him by faith each day. But when we do that, we can have the same inner proclamation of joy in the Lord that Habakkuk expresses here.